Resonance 104.4 FM, the art of listening. Hello and welcome to today's episode of Paperweight Radio, Explorations in Visual and Material Culture, with me, your host, Juliette Christensen, on Resonance 104.4 FM. In this week's walk along the frontiers of research into images and objects, our theme is mixed media. So often in creative practice, we seem to think that specific media forms are very much tied to specific ways of performing creative practice, so we think maybe of painting or sculpture as these very discrete activities. However, the truth is far more complex, and certainly in the post-media state, of art practice and the move in design away from iconic objects into critical things, we need to look at and attend to the complexities of mixed media. Joining me to discuss this theme are the art historian Matt Lodder, historical geographer Elizabeth Haynes, artist Marion Macken and the artist Judy Spark. Don't forget that, as ever, you can follow the images and objects under discussion through our Tumblr, paperweightnewspaper.tumblr.com, and we tweet through at paperweightnews. If you want to join the conversation, please use the hashtag paperweightradio, and we're happy to discuss more with you. Our first guest today is the art historian Matt Lodder. Matt completed his PhD in 2010 with a thesis entitled Body Art, Body Modifications, Artistic Practice. And before his role at Essex, he taught contemporary art and theory at the universities of Reading and Birmingham. His current research is principally concerned with the history of Western tattooing and the artistic status of body art and body modification practices. And he is a very old friend of the show and he was the co-editor of the newspaper with me. So I'm delighted to welcome him back. Hello, Matt. Hello, thank you for having me again. Hi. Uh, so what I thought we'd talk about today is you're doing a series of um, screenings called Moving Pictures, and you're curating that with a colleague of yours at the University of Essex, where you teach art history. And I really wanted to talk to you today about the representation of art and art history in on the small screen and on the silver screen, as maybe we can call it. Yeah, so I was chatting with my colleague Sarah DeMello at Essex and trying to work out things we can do for our students. Um, and... We got really interested in perceptions of art history and perceptions of visual culture and what people think art and art history and museums are, right? This kind of perspective from the outside, because we're very insulated in this bubble, right? Looking at looking at the art world from the inside. And we, we, we became sort of really concerned, I think is the right word, about how the museum world, the art world is perceived, right? So we started thinking about trying to do um, a series of events and film screenings with films not by artists, not kind of art films, but films that kind of feature art as either a plot element or as a kind of key kind of turning point for the movie. So, and that's what we're going to do. We're going to we're going to show uh, in Freshers Week this this week, and uh, we've got three three screenings lined up. Uh, the first is um, an episode of the 1960s Batman series. Excellent choice. Excellent choice. Uh, an episode called Pop Goes the Joker, where the Joker comes up with an elaborate plan uh, revolving around kind of conceptual art, where he becomes a conceptual artist in order to steal all the quote-unquote real art. So from that's, the a, that's an example Museum. of art in sort of popular culture TV, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. And it's kind of, you know, it's right at the time when... Andy Warhol, for example, is kind of, you know, very much a kind of public popular figure. And so it's really kind of t- almost taking the mickey out of out of Warhol and his public persona and out of contemporary art um, and conceptualism and kind of the avant-garde as it's emerging. Well, actually, even maybe as it's petering out towards the end of the 60s. Um, um, you're also doing other screenings, which is an artist biography, which is quite a popular trope yeah. in depictions so, of so art So we're doing Frida. So right. the University of Essex has a huge collection of Latin American art, the uh, Essex collection of art of Latin America, Escala. And so we're showing a 
biopic of Frida. And artist biopics are really interesting because they have to kind of, they have to do two things. One, they have to kind of romanticise and hagiographise the artist, but they have to kind of paint their artistic practice as part of a struggle. So all of these like artist biographies, whether they're of Van Gogh or Picasso or um, Rembrandt even, or Vermeer, they become these kind of stories of struggle. Um, and the art, you also have to have a scene where, they're, where they're, they sort of... The, the tortured cam- artist, yeah, right? Yeah, but also where the camera kind of frames a scene where it looks like a, pic- a really recognisable work of art by that artist, you know. So we're doing Frida, and then we're also doing a, a film called Stendhal Syndrome, which is a... 19- which, of all the syndromes, I'm going to tell you, is one of my <laughs> favourite syndromes. I don't know about you. It's my favourite syndrome. So it's a 1970s <laughs> horror movie by uh, Dario Argento, Italian horror movie. And the Stendhal Syndrome is about... Um, it's, it's, as a syndrome, it's about people who become so overwhelmed by too much beautiful things in one place. And it comes out of Paris. Florence. Is, is it Florence? Florence? Because I've always yeah. understood Stendhal Syndrome as being associated with Paris because there was a spate a couple of years ago where Japanese tourists yeah. were being um, committed for mental health problems because they were going to Paris and they were absolutely overwhelmed by the iconography. No, the thing with, Japan, the, thing with the Japanese tourists in Paris was that they were so um, shocked by how Paris didn't match up to their expectations <laughs> that they'd been so sold... cognitive dissonance. Yeah, they'd been sold Paris as this beautiful place and it was full of dirty French, you know... <laughs> Not that all French No, people. no, no, you yeah, know yeah. what I mean, dirty French stuff. Um, so it wasn't as beautiful as they thought it was going to be. But the, so the Sendol Syndrome in the movie is basically about this, this kind of serial killer who takes advantage of women who faint in front of artworks and uses that to kind of you know lure his victims in um, it's one of the few films ever filmed at the Fitzy as well so how do you think these three screenings fit together if at all in terms of pop culture the artist biography and a horror film in terms of what are they communicating or what are you hoping they communicate to your freshers as they come in about art history yeah well I think what they communicate is that what we inside the art world are us trying to communicate about art uh, the things we s- tell, the stories we tell about what we do and about the objects we teach about don't match up really with, I think, the th- stories that people um, who, who don't have uh, who have, don't have a naive interest in art have. Um, so, for example, with, with the Joker stuff, you know, I, I teach contemporary art, I teach conceptualism, I teach Andy Warhol, I teach abstraction and post-abstraction, and I'm very kind of interested in it. But to the kind of the the, 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 the real world, people who aren't kind of inculcated in, uh, in this world, they think it's ridiculous <laughs> um, and pompous and and absurd, right? Um, and so I'm kind of interested in in why that might be and and and, and what's the difference between you know the kind of parody of of the of the contemporary art world, for example, that's in that that Batman episode or other films. Um, and, but it's and also the in the Batman film from the Tim Burton yeah. film. There's a whole scene. I was remembering this the other night. That you know, the, is it the Joker walks through the art gallery? Yeah. it's it's Jack Nicholson, and he's yeah. kind of throwing paint around. Yeah, exactly. Well, that that uh, that's actually probably a reference to this this sixties episode because there's a great scenes where he's sort of spraying art, uh, spraying paint all over the place. I think it's because you know. Uh, People perceive the art world as this very pompous, self-important, ridiculous place. So, so art world characters make really good villains or dupes in movies, right? They they're really they're really good, kind of like either as kind of evil people, you know, kind of trying to trick and fool and con people, or they're kind of idiots and pretentious and, and stupid. Um, and that really, as someone who loves this stuff, kind of really upsets me. <laughs> so you're showing this as a kind of incitement almost to these freshers coming in because they, you're, are you expecting that they come in? I don't know about your experience, but I certainly remember the first lecture I did on introduction to art history at Goldsmiths and, and I was told to do the political project of the department and, and lots of students turn up with this idea that they're going to be taught this connoisseur 
censorship model of art history. You know, the names of all the great painters, the dates, the, and that's adamantly what Goldsmiths doesn't do. And so, you know, I had to teach them in a very different way. Uh, is this your experience of freshers who come in at Essex? Yeah, I mean, very much so. We have, I mean, I think a lot of young art students or people interested in art history are very conservative. They like old pictures, right? They like representational sculpture. They like things that look like, you know, what they're supposed to look like. And so um, they are sort of as suspicious, I think, of, you know, abstraction and conceptualism as the people who are making that that TV show in the 60s were, right? Um, But I want to try and get to a stage where I can kind of go, okay, this is mocking the contemporary art scene because the scene is amazing. It has an artist in the Gotham City Art Fair called Leonardo Davinsky, who has a chimp that throws balloons full of paint at a canvas. Right now, obviously, there are there are actual artists who have done that. Um, you know, actually, sort of slightly before uh, the the Gutai group, the Gutai group in Japan, a really good example. And it's up to me as an art historian, I think, to then try and explain to firstly these 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 um, these kids who are here to be educated by me why you know it's not just throwing random pots of paint at a a canvas you know why what the gutai were doing in the 50s in post-war japan and trying to you know come up with a a way of expressing what happened to the japanese masculine identity during the war and all the things we can read into gutai why that's different from the kind of cartoon version of a monkey throwing (laughs) balloons full of paint at a a canvas so um but but as part of that also i want to kind of try and explain to my students that what they think they're doing is not what other people think they're doing and it's up to them as future historians and members of the artistic world and the art world, uh, art world professions to to better communicate really why it is we like this stuff why it is we pay attention to it why it is it, to be really blunt why it's worth spending government money on you know there's kind of so there's a there's a politics to the representation of, of this i think i'm thinking here of a of a book that's published uh, and you see it in lots of art gallery shops called uh, why your child could not come up with modern art or yeah. contemporary art or something your, it's called your child could not do this yeah why your yeah. child could not do this yeah. uh, and this is often a, a a kind of critique that i get from from friends who are not in the art world like like we've discussed um you know my child could do this uh that kind of critique and i think what's really important maybe with the screening of pop goes the joker is to talk about the embeddedness maybe you're talking about this japanese group and how this this art practice was embedded within a particular cultural social historical geographical position and actually lifting up that art practice and putting it into a movie without context of course that's going to make it ridiculous because yeah. you don't understand the context in which the art is being yeah, made exactly and there's a thought yeah you know, and there's a thoughtfulness behind and you know a lot of the thoughtfulness i mean actually the thing i find really interesting about it as well is actually a lot of the art world really is pretentious and a lot of artists are vacuous you know so actually it's also up to us as art professionals i think to sort of say when we think things are ridiculous and awful and vapid and uninteresting. But this just, I'm going to close it with a a final kind of uh, idea about biography, artist biography, you know, this discussion that artists are vacuous or that the art world is, you know, ridiculous or pompous at some kind of stuff. The notion that we we think of as the death of the author, right? The the removal of the artist from the artwork is, is quite an important critical move that we make as as art historians now in a certain way yeah but if you think about you know the, the artists that, that that get films made about them are the character artists you know that they are your frida carlos your um andy warhols your Va- vincent van gogh they're people who have kind of quite readily appropriative narratives about how their art was produced and how it related to their life stories and um you know no, i don't think anyone's going to going to make uh, a, a a biopic of a of a 
someone like Michael Craig Martin, for example, you know. No, I can't imagine what the title is, but I'm sure we'll discuss it yeah. while we play the track. Uh, you've chosen our first track. We've done some very heavy editing because there were some explicit lyrics. So thank you very much for yeah. that. Uh, do you want to introduce it? Yeah, well, this is a song that does the same thing. It's um, Picasso Baby by Jay-Z uh, recently coming out of his collaboration with Marina Abramovich. And it's basically about how Jay-Z considers himself to be the modern day Picasso. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, 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 uh. Okay. I never stuck my cock in the fox's box, but damn if I ain't open Pandora's box. They try to slander your man on CNN and Fox. My Mirandas don't stand a chance with cops. Even my old fans like, oh man, stop. That was Picasso Baby by Jay-Z. You're listening to Paperweight, Explorations in Visual and Material Culture on Resonance 104.4 FM with Juliet Christensen. Don't forget that you can follow the images and objects that we're discussing today on the Paperweight Tumblr, paperweightnewspaper.tumblr.com, and we tweet through at Paperweight News. If you want to join the conversation, please use the hashtag Paperweight Radio. And so our second guest for today's show on mixed media is Liz Haynes. Liz is currently a PhD candidate at Royal Holloway University of London and the Science Museum. She's investigating the introduction of aerial photography into mapping in British colonial Africa with a beautifully titled project called Losing Touch with the Ground. And that really describes the shift from the age of exploration with compass and sketchpad to post-war industrial scale instruments. She's a postgraduate representative on the British Society of History of Science Outreach and Education Committee, and she co-curates Passenger Films. Hello, Liz. Welcome to Paperweight. Hello, Juliet. Hi. So uh, I wanted to talk to you about uh, your rather wonderful project, because you're a historical geographer. Mm -hmm. And so one of the questions I wanted to ask was to do with mapping of Africa during the period. You're working predominantly in the period of 1940s, 1950s. Is that right, from the piece that I read? The, yes. Well, in fact, that, that's a sort of section of the project. The, the, the project as a whole starts um, just before aerial photography arrives in Africa, which is uh, in the 1920s. And then I go up to just after the Second World War. So, yes, the, the, the project spans 1910 to 1950, more or less. Yeah. And it's centred in northern Rhodesia, which is an area roughly, roughly equivalent now to, to western Zambia. Mm-hmm. And the, the, really, the thing that jumped out from your writing in the first instance was... You really importantly note that although Africa had been mapped under colonialism and there are references to the map of Africa, as it's called, there was no single agency responsible for cartographic work and so there were no uniform methods. Does this mean that during the period in which you're working, the map of Africa was very much a sort of colonial collective dream? Absolutely. Yeah, it was absolutely a collective dream. And and different people had different dreams. So they, so it was in, in that sense, it was also a very, very patchy kind of dream. Um, there were lots of people who had very clear ideas about what domination meant. I mean, th- there's, a, there's a long history of the map as being a kind of symbol for imperial power. And so there's lots of people, there's, there's, there's beautiful images of um, Rhodes, who was one of the kind of important um, British colonialists who was, did a lot of work in, in Southern Africa, kind of developing mining and, and, and expanding British power there. And he's sort of standing across the continent with one leg in South Africa and one leg in Egypt. This is kind of famous kind of cartoon. And there's that sort of sense in which there's a, there's a desire to really imprint the British presence and to really kind of create this um, iconic Im- image of Africa as British. But there's also people who are involved in um, in mining practices and the kinds of maps that they want are of an entirely different nature. And then there's people who are interested in, in various 
various kinds of wildlife. There's people who want to go out and hunt. And, and so there's all kinds of maps. And, 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 and one map never fulfills all of those purposes. So that, that kind of collective dream uh, has lots of kind of different facets, as it were. So lots of different groups collectively dreaming in different kinds of ways. Mm. Um, what was the process of map making in colonial Africa like before aerial photography? I know you've sent through some images of, mm-hmm. of map rooms and people working and drawing up cartographic maps. And there's a whole system in place with particular roles of people kind of going out into the landscape and mapping. Can you just describe for us how that process worked? So um, before aerial photography, and, 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 and depending, and in some areas this continued long after aerial photography, uh, basically what happened was well, there were sort of two different sets of people, three different sets of people working on maps. So one would be the, 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 the local government, so the, the national, in, in this case, the so Northern Rhodesia, the colonial government would have a survey department and they would send people out into the field. They'd do a small amount every year so that in, in, in Zambia, in northern Rhodesia, there's a uh, the, the, there's a rainy season which makes most of the country impassable, except if you're I mean except if in, in very particular circumstances. So they'd go out for six months of the year, say they'd go out to 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 a, a region, to a mountain, to a kind of stretch of forest, and they'd do as much as they could, and then they come back to the office. And, and then how they'd much draw it is up. how much is they could do as much as they could? Are we talking sort of in terms of square miles or square kilometres? Are we how is this process going on year by year? I have this kind of in my imagination. I well, have this, these. Yeah, this is one of the this is one of the wonderful things which I think has become obvious. So you see the to me, I think maps were something very kind of entire and very complete. Even I mean, I'd been thinking about maps for a long time before I started this project, but they were still something very whole. And there's wonderful documents in the archives at Kew and the National Archives where you can see they mark on a kind of on on a kind of regional map what they've done this year, and it'll look like four or five little stick lines. And they'll be, they'll be ever so proud of this. Look, we've We've done this bit. We've done this bit. We've done this bit, and it and it, and it constitutes f- fractions of fractions of the territory because it's one person. I mean, what one 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 British white person with uh, a team of a team of carriers, a, 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 lots of African people on board with him, but they're they're kind of walking through the jungle or walking through the bush or walking a kind of through sometimes fairly arid landscapes. But that's all they can do. All they can do is what they can cover by foot. So you can imagine that one person can't do that much in six months. It's a very limited amount. That's that's it's kind of a yeah. It's a, it's a very limited number of, of miles that you can track in that way. So in terms of northern Rhodesia, how many how many people are going out at the time to do these kind of mapping projects? Is it like a team of 10 or 100? Or? Right. So the the survey department in this, I mean, the different colonies, different British colonies had different kinds of scale, different the departments were different sizes. Uh, in the case of uh, northern Rhodesia, in the early years, they had probably, in the 1920s, they had an average of about five people. So that, that that was the that was the total number five of five people. five five people going out into the field. They had a couple of people working in the office back in in in, in Livingston in the in the capital at that time. But yeah, so five people. They also had um, in those in in across the whole entire territory. They had different kinds of like people doing administrative work. So each local administrator would also be making their own kind of ad hoc map because they didn't have any kind of you know big map to work from. So they as they kind of as they were sort of administrating and kind of walking through the, the, the areas that they were supposed to be ruling effectively, they were meeting the local chiefs, they were kind of doing what they would call tours, and as they did those, they would draw their own kind of maps gradually, piece by piece, as they kind of walked through the areas. But those, again, very limited and very unscientific. They didn't have any particular instruments. All they were using was more or less a compass and a, 
uh, you might have used one of these at school when you were learning about mapping a cyclometer. So just a big a big wheel that you roll wheel along the stick. ground. Yeah, yeah so no. that, that was the sort of technology that they were using. So um, those people were making maps. So there was a in total there was you know there was a number of people, and then there was the private companies who were who were involved in mining and so on. And lots of them they had much larger field teams. So they would be possibly they would have hundreds of people in the field possibly at one time doing mapping. So the the kinds of quantities and and and, and numbers is it depends on what kind of activity and what kind of map were being produced. But there's these kind of disparate groups all across, but but largely largely doing, um, yes, these effectively what you can imagine is kind of little lines gradually being drawn drawn across the landscape rather than a, rather than really something sort of like a surface or really kind of like a, a flat area being. I imagine covered. almost like a spider web, kind exactly, of yeah, coming out from exactly. it. Exactly. Um, you've you've written up uh, that actually there's a lot of interest in. Uh, the documentary landscape of colonialism Mm -hmm. um, in terms of other scholars paying attention to different forms of documents that Mm. are used to establish colonialism. How does the map fit into that landscape? What other kind of paperwork, if I can call it that, is existing around maps to carry out the colonial project? Right. So the, the... One of the things that one of the main things that the, the colonial government were very very keen on knowing was the number of people in any given area, because uh, right from right from the very first appearance of the British, the, as soon as they kind of took control of of territories, they were they were sort of they they came to agreements with local local chiefs. They were then effectively the sort of administrators, and they'd need to know how many people were in any given area in order to to collect taxes from them. So but these effectively constituted kind of lists. They'd have a great big books where they kind of wrote the history of the area that they were they were working in. They'd have lists of all the people. They'd have lists of the villages they went through. Sometimes they would just kind of be a route and then they'd write the names of the villages and the, and the total number of people by them. Um, they, the, the political administration was also very interested in... Um, in, in trying to kind of build roads and infrastructures. So they would be also kind of developing those sorts of documents. Um, other groups would be in the field doing different kinds of work. So not sometimes, and particularly later, they would have anthropologists who are working for the government. Earlier, these would, these would be working for other kinds of institutions less directly, and those people would be taking photographs or documenting. Quite often, the early surveyors were also... Um, very ambitious. Um, they had the they had the, they had the idea of themselves as, as explorers. So although they were effectively bureaucrats, they had the idea of themselves as David Livingstone or, or, or one of these kind of great Victorian encouraged by those great Victorian children's yeah. books. So they'd be keeping diaries and they'd be collecting butterflies and they'd be shooting everything they could see <laughs> and and kind of bringing the horns and so on back with them. So there was there's there's a great deal of kind of documentation. Lots and lots of letter writing. Letters letters are the kind of the, the, the trying to kind of communicate across these long distances. Trying to kind of bridge back to London, trying to bridge across these huge, huge scales of, 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 of you know, thousands of square miles. Letter writing is, is the main, <laughs> the main form of colonial document. You, you talk, you really make a really important distinction throughout your project between the colonialist word and the colonial, colonialist deed. Mm. What are the significant kind of chasms between the rhetoric and practice of colonial cartography? Mm. So the, 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 the what you were talking about earlier, the, the idea of an African map, or the idea of the map and the idea of the, 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 the imperial kind of power was, um, was, 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 that was what the rhetoric was full of. So everybody who, who, who was participated in government, everybody who was part of the, part of the colonial project would use those words. They talk about the map, they talk about British power, they talk about um, knowledge, they talk about the British presence as unlocking the, the potential of the land which had been... Um, 
So cartography was a very important part of the idea of unlocking the potential of land, which had previously only been kind of sort of approximately used by the indigenous people. Now the British were here to sort of do it properly. So On industrial scales. On industrial scales. Yeah. So, but the idea, in order to do that, you'd need knowledge. I mean, knowledge and, knowledge and science were sort of key parts of this, of this rhetoric. The, the chasm comes in practice. I mean, as, 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 I, was, as I was saying before, the, you know, these, these, this kind of spider web gradually f- coming over the landscape. These people working in these kinds of um, very isolated places with, with compasses and, 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 and wooden wheels, n- none of this constituted what they, um, what, what, how, the, how the imperial map was described. It was described as something, as something magnificent, scientific and, and total. And so all this kind of sort of bit work was um, definitely didn't constitute a kind of imperial dream. So there's 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 that there's the I think also the um, the the ways in which the so this idea of development so the the possibility of what could come out of the land the idea of African land as a resource and the ways in which. Um, the ways in which that was supposed to be managed and managed effectively, the idea that you you would you would be using sort of superior scientific knowledge in order to do something better than it had been done before, whereas in practice there was very little knowledge and most of the colonial action that took place, whether that was agricultural policy or um, any kind of demographic management, was usually done on the basis of 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 of. of, of moments spent in the field anecdotes and kind of very little evidence so very piecemeal in that sense very kind of piecemeal in that sense too I think that the final kind of point I want to get to and I think it's come through in us talking today is the relationship between the colonizer and the colonized Mm. has that entered kind of physically into the maps that you're that you've been looking at at the archive down in in Zambia certainly yeah well in a variety can you feel the traces of yes so the, the I mean in in the, the African people who, who lived in northern Rhodesia are relatively absent from the cartography. It's very difficult to find traces of them. But as you start reading the letters that kind of surround the creation of these maps, then they become more obvious. So, for example, um, local government boundaries were formed um, uh, sort of over and over again as they tried to kind of find the most rational way to kind of divide up the territory. And quite often that would be in relationship to pre-existing groupings of people so people who lived under a particular chief or under a particular headman and the ways in which those people had already kind of pre-existing sort of territorial practices where they would go to market where they would go to to where they were where going the to borders. kind of grow, where, where they had kind of yeah inherent Adorn. borders in the way that they in the way that they lived so where where disputes came into those you you get a lot of kind of um you get a lot of hand-drawn sketch maps so you get again in this kind of correspondence you can see different kinds of people trying to make claims about how those borders should exist and, and where they should be drawn and in in that process you get lots of um you, you really you feel the presence of the local people trying to kind of use this as an opportunity to reinstate their claims or to kind of mark mark a presence within these kind of colonial documents one of the one of the most one of the most um striking examples of this is from i think from it was from the 1940s but it was uh, the first time in which a local chief um uh, demanded that one of the British colonial administrators come and draw a map. He said, you know, we're having this dispute. It's not been solved. It's been going on for ages. You come here with your map-making stuff. Draw a map for us. So, in fact, the British, there were two British officials who went to that site and kind of tried to tried to resolve the dispute in their sort of in, in, in their relatively authoritative way. But the chief wasn't wasn't content with this. And the reason that this is a, an interesting example was that he then took the documents and he took this kind of um, sort of semi-legal situation that had been set up and he actually took 
took took that situation then to court. So the map, he was then using the power of the map for the first time in 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 in, in, a, in a in a court of justice in order to kind of stake a claim within the kind of colonial mechanisms of so, power. So yeah, putting the tools to use. Exactly. And in terms of mapping, you've chosen a rather wonderful piece of sound for us to play. <laughs> Do you want to quickly introduce it? What yeah. have you chosen for us? So I'm very interested in 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 the in the paperness of maps because particularly in in this land in this huge sparse area where where it was very difficult to get documents from one place to another. The fact that maps were on paper and the kind of fragility of paper and the heaviness of paper was a very important part of, 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 of where that information could travel. And so this piece of... Um, this, is, this is an audio clip from a, a video which, just, which gives some indication of, of how those maps are material. Thank you, Liz. Hi, I'm Richard from Federal Maps. In front of me is a 1 to 50,000 scale topographic map. You might get it this way in the mail, which is great if it's going on your wall, but if you want to go out in the bush, it's going to have to get folded. We get questions all the time. How do I fold my topo map? That's what I'm here to show you. First things first, you lay the map out in front of you. Fold it once across. This is going to be the standard accordion style fold. Make sure you line up the corners. Start at the center roll out. You probably want a roller like this, make it a lot easier, give me a sharp crease. Once you have your fold down the middle, you take one of the ends, fold it to that middle fold. Line it up, another tight crease, then you bring back the front section, line it all up, another crease. That way you have your front piece, tells you what map it is, right out in the front. Next step, fold it over. Pull back towards the middle, line it up, tight crease, there you go. Second half is doing the exact same thing. Back over to the middle. Once you got it down into one long piece like that, just fold it into thirds. And the last piece comes underneath. Just like that, it's ready to fit in your pocket, your knapsack, your bag. You can take it outside with you. Don't have to worry about it. That was instructions on how to fold a topographic map replete with paper folding chosen by Liz Haynes. You're listening to Paperweight, Explorations in Visual and Material Culture on Resonance 104.4 FM with me, your host, Juliette Christensen. This is a show in which we explore through conversations with artists and architects, curators and craftspeople, designers and historians and theorists, contemporary research into and with images and objects. Don't forget that you can follow the images and objects that we discussed today on the Paperweight Tumblr, Paperweight News 
newspaper.tumblr.com. We tweet through at Paperweight News and we're using the hashtag Paperweight Radio. Our third guest today is Marianne Macken. Hello, Marianne. Hi. Marianne is a practicing artist, a designer and educator, and she's currently Associate Professor of Architecture. And you're going to have to forgive my pronunciation at Zhan Zhaotong, Liverpool University, China. I don't know if that was how it, did it was I just do? a part of the beginning. Xi'an. 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 Xiaotong, sorry. And her research and teaching interests are in representation, design studio and the intersections of architecture, landscape architecture and visual art. She holds a PhD by practice from the University of Sydney and her work has been acquired by various international public collections of artists' books, the medium in which she works, including collections at Tate Britain, the Victorian Albert. And she's undertaking an artist residency. She has undertaken artist residencies in London and Tokyo and Wellington in New Zealand. Hello and welcome. I'm delighted you you could make it today. You're our first guest from China (laughs) ever. So thank you. Obviously, you haven't made the journey especially for the show today. No, I wish I could say that I had. So you're a trained architect who works through the medium of artists' books. And you sent me over an article, which was an incredibly beautiful article. I really, really enjoyed reading it. And what I wanted to ask you first off was, how does the book as a concept, um, and excuse the kind of finger gestures, operate as a site for documenting alternative architectural processes? How has the book worked for you in terms of documenting architectural processes? A large question. It is a large question. Um, what interests me most most about architecture in some ways is to do with its representations and its drawings. And what the book allows, it's sort of a, almost this, um, it's like a folded model. It, it works similarly to a model, but it works in a different way also. The model is always about something being to scale, even though the model as an object uh, has quite a presence. It in some ways, it always is referring to something else. Whereas the book, it's something that's read. It has an intimacy to it. And the one-to-one presence of a book is stronger. What the book also allows for is pagination. That doesn't necessarily mean pages that are bound, but the relationship between the drawing and the paper is different. In, in architecture, in some ways, you can think about these ink drawings being lifted up off a page and being placed somewhere else, their relationship to their page is very different. It's, yeah, I was it, going to ask you about this because in architectural practices, it's still the case where the drawing is considered separate to the medium on which it's made. So you could pick up an architectural drawing, almost mentally pick up an architectural drawing and almost put it onto a different surface and it's considered to be the same thing in a way. It, exactly. And, and and the authorship is sometimes muddied. It's, it's, it's to do with the the architect of the firm, which may not necessarily be the person who's drawing it. And there's been cases where, you know, it's been being done by someone who's documented it in some other way. And so what the book allows is a different relationship between the drawing and paper because of this medium of, of the paper itself that, that I, in my work, I was trying to look at how to make drawings that didn't involve ink. And so I was using watermarks or embossing or laser cutting. And, and as soon as that happens, it the page is no longer just a kind of um, neutral surface. The page physically forms the drawing. And there's a really interesting relationship, I think, in books between <coughs> 2D and 3D, which is something that architects deal with quite a lot in terms of their practice so we think of drawings as 2d and then the model as 3d and then you have the building at the end and actually what you can do with a book in terms of it being a page and a collection of pages is actually play with that 2d 3d model that's my understanding of of some of your work yeah very much and and um 
the 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 writer Robin Evans has written about this strange phenomenon in in architecture that that we move from two dimensions to three. It's sort of this reversed uh, dimensionality, rather than in some ways the world's going the opposite direction from three to two dimensions. Um, and there are certain books that, because of mechanisms of folding or unfolding, or they have movable parts to them, they can actually, in some ways, operate uh, from a flat surface and be built up. And so there is this very much an openable quality to the book. There's there's an interiority very very different from a model um, that's possible. There's a wonderful example that you use, and again, you're going to have to forgive my pronunciation of uh, Olafur Eliasson's mm-hmm. um, Your House Book from 20, uh, 2006, and that records a journey through his home Mm. as a book there seems to be a real filmic quality to Mm. that book Mm. do you want to describe it briefly for the listeners it's a beautiful book that that documents his his house in Copenhagen that um, uh, each page has been laser cut and it's as though a section has been taken through the house um, I think every 220 millimetres it's this incredibly dense um, book that as you page through it, you're also walking through the volume of the house itself. And so, again, it brings up this other aspect of books, that it's not an individual drawing or a page. It's about the series. And so narrative is possible through 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 opening and turning the pages. And just, just to be clear, on in this book, there is no, there are no drawings as such. It's just laser cut out of the white page. So you which just is have, forming the drawing. Which, yeah. is, which is making the drawing through laser yeah, cutting. Yeah, exactly. So, so, so the sort of... Um, so it's structural. The, the space of the house therefore is is the void of the drawing and so it also in some ways it works to scale because when it's closed you can see the thickness if you know how often a section has been taken the so th- you know how big his house is exactly the, from the thickness of the book which i kind of love that the the one-to-one and the scale uh drawing are working together and and you've worked in a similar vein in that you've made a book about the architect Mies Mies van der Rohe a great hero of modernist architecture called built houses and you made this in in 2009 images of it are going through our tumblr now but i wondered if you describe this project for our listeners as well yeah i was interested in in Mies partly um because he's someone who who sort of self-edited his work very strongly um in in exhibitions of his work he it was only really the later work. He was trying to edit very h- highly his own body of work. And and there is some murkiness about authority of drawing, of whether a drawing was by him or his biographer. And and this one takes um, from a recent uh, a publication that came out of re-photographing all of his built houses. And so I was very interested in this idea of um, this survey of work being photographed at the one time by one photographer and using that in a way of um, having all of the the plans of his houses and each one is laser cut out out of paper and they're cumulative. So the first page is the first house from 1906 and then the second page, the next house is centred on the front door. So it's rather than rather than the house or the plan being centred within the pages, it's centred on this one tethered to the page with one point. So as it moves through, they're sequentially cut out and so the page is eaten away. And then once the 15 houses are there, the very first house is removed. And so then the later part of the book, it's the later American work with a very different style, um, there's less paper removed because of the thinness of the walls, and then there's a letter print, uh, uh, a letterpress quality as well to the text that it's 
it's laboriously um, documents the the name and the title. And so then that also is shown of how many times each house plan has been taken out of the page. I wonder if you'd indulge me with my next question, because you mentioned one of my very favourite books in your piece, which is Jonathan Safran Fur's Tree of Codes, um, which is essentially, it's published by Visual Editions. If if listeners haven't seen it before, I do recommend it. It's a fantastic book. Um, And it's a work of kind of book art literature in a way. Uh, How for you did it did it help you in thinking about architectural space that kind of mixed media between what was happening in book book publishing in if we want to think of it in literature terms and book art practice to do with architecture i mean it is very interesting that this is a book that um mentally you could sort of think of as an artist book but you know you can buy it over the internet it's it it, was it's an amazing process that that um it's 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 taken an existing text and removed certain uh, sentences, words throughout it. What it, I, I came across it at a similar time as I was making the Mies book, and in some ways the Mies book I was each page was very very strong of this thirty page book, but to see see this particular one, um, it it put them together and it started to to see, uh, I think there's a quote on the back that Eliasson says that it's you start to see the, the book as having a body itself because you can start to see this pagination, you can see this sequence of this. And and I'm always interested in the analogy of, of words versus pictures. This but also the notion of bodiliness, yeah. as I suppose, in architectural practice, which is so centred around bodies and space. And then we think about literatures, <coughs> you know, writers have a body of work that they produce mm. and that your mm. your books are your children. And, you know, that kind of idea. So that there's a mixed media theme, I think, there that I might have teased <laughs> out with you. I don't know. You've chosen Appropriate for today. Appropriate for today. You've chosen a lovely piece of music. Do you want to introduce it? It's, it's interesting. This music, it was less about... Um, less about the singer or even even the song it's it's a piece by um that was recorded by Alan Lomax and it's all about documentation it's about archiving and this idea of the original and the copy it's the singer is is sort of the voice of an older song coming through thank you very much Go down, go down. 
Dad Was Pharaoh by Sidney Carter, chosen by Marion Macken. This is Paperweight Radio, explorations in visual and material culture on Resonance 104.4 FM with me, your host, Juliet Christensen. And I do recommend that for today's show, you do go and visit our Tumblr, which is paperweightnewspaper.tumblr.com. Our final guest for today is Judy Spark. Judy Spark is an artist and lecturer in contemporary fine art practice at Gray's School of Art, Robert Gordon University, Aberdeen. Her visual art practice seeks to explore the gaps and overlaps that reside within contemporary human experience in relation to the natural world and the technological. She spoke to me earlier this week from Scotland about her interest in how communication technology is used within contemporary art practice. Hello Judy, welcome to Paperweight. Hi Juliet, thanks for inviting me. So the question I wanted to start with was about a project called Back to the Things Themselves that you did with Leslie Panton, which was shown at the Glasgow International Festival of Visual Art in 2012. And in that piece, you installed two small FM transmitters that broadcast sounds into the gallery space. Yeah. How for you in this project did communication technology and your interest in the human experience of the natural world intersect, if at all? Um, okay, well, I um, I think first of all, what I was trying to do, there was two separate things going on, um, two different gallery spaces, two FM transmitters. One was transmitting the sound of birdsong, which had been recorded at an earlier date. And the other one was transmitting overlapping spoken soundtracks, uh, soundtracks from people who were describing um plant forms, both of which uh, existed in the gallery in the form of drawings. Um, and the bird song was interesting because in that gallery space, which had a, a, an echo, it I think it was mistaken for coming from outside at some point. So there was a kind of crossover with the natural world that was happening. Um, what I was trying to do in both instances was kind of talk about the fact that it's impossible to repeat an experience of the natural world either by trying to describe it to somebody else in words or by drawing it or by recording it Um, so it's impossible to repeat Um, and it's also impossible to maybe participate fully in the experience of others of that world as well in the sense that it's always mediated in the sense that you know someone will tell you about something or you'll hear a recording of something or you'll see an image but it will never be the 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 real phenomenological experience well I think that's part of it it's kind of unrepeatable it's unrepeatable it's only it's only present in the moment but also because it's so difficult to get to one another's experience as well so even if something isn't mediated by technology it's mediated through the voice of another person who lives in that technological world as well so the possibility of direct experience is is very difficult in the first place, but then to try to relate that experience is also fraught with with all sorts of issues and and things that we've learned that we take with us from experience to experience. And what were some of the reactions from the exhibition uh, visitors from the, your audience? How how did they? What was? Did you get any f- feedback or comments from them about about the space and the notion of the natural and the technological? 
Yeah, you do. You tend to get very, um, I find in those sorts of environments that the feedback, the feedback you tend to get is quite thin. You know, there's a lot to look at. There was two artists in there. One of the artists, you know, in myself had made these pieces of work that interrelated to one another. And you don't really get a good forum for discussion. You tend to get very general comments and people leave comments in the visitor's book just saying, you know, they enjoyed it and they liked the way that these things related or they didn't get that bit or but it, it kind of lacks the depth of discussion that I really enjoy um about these things I think is this a piece you're thinking about staging again in another way it sounds as if you feel that there's more room for yeah. it to develop yeah I think the sorts of things that I work with in terms of um you know, books, FM transmitters, pre-recorded sounds, drawing, those activities are all ongoing and I do tend to kind of shift them as I as I push them forward. But there's another element to my practice, which is, I guess it's more recent and I'm doing it more often, which is, is the written word, having just said ironically that, you know, you can't communicate anything effectively <laughs> through the written words. I'm now um, using it to go into different area and a different depth of discussion about the same things you know so somebody might come to the exhibition you have a short discussion but you can make them aware that there's other material that they can dip into that will take them slightly different you know to a different place from the same set of ideas and um, you've produced another work around communication technology called uh, tuning to the ether which is a rather wonderful title and that was yeah. a piece that you made in response to finding out that AT&T's first transatlantic telephone line had its receiving station very near to where you lived or worked. Is that right? What, yeah. What was the, well, what I was, was doing the a residency. It was actually... Oh, sorry, Julia, what was that? Uh, carry on. What was the work? <laughs> I was going to ask, what was the work that you made in response and how did it embody some of the ideas around communication technology that you're interested in? Well, yeah, I found out this little known fact about Cooper, which is an area in Fife in Scotland. It's just a little town, but it did used to have a very important profile as this area that is, it's supposed to have specific properties um, that make it highly receptive to certain kinds of transmission, especially long, long wave transmissions. So um, I was doing an artist residency over there. Oh, sorry. No, I did actually did the artist residency as a result of this piece of work. I just took part in um, Cooper Visual Arts uh, yearly festival, annual festival that they were having at the time. And yeah, the work was made by constructing um, very basic radios from kind of household bits and pieces like pencil leads and safety pins and um, pieces of copper wire, crystal, things like that. Um, and really, it was to try to kind of get to grips with the notion of transmission being an absolutely incredible thing. I mean, it, we've, we really do take that fact for granted now. But to try to get back into the mindset of the people who were broadcasting from Rocky Point in New York over to, you know, the east coast of Scotland at that point, it was in the early 20s, mid 20s, I think, um, you know, that must have been absolutely incredibly groundbreaking at the time. But also this idea that you're making you're making these kind of very highly technological objects out of what sounds to me like very domestic products. And I don't mean that in a pejorative sense, but things that you find lying around your house. Well, no, this is the thing. I mean, and I don't claim to have 
um, invented these things myself, <laughs> you know, there are ways and means to finding out. But the, the point is really that the kind of the discoveries that we, you know, kind of lean on now for our day to day lives do come about through that kind of, you know, um, puttling about with bits and pieces. And, it, you know, kind of really ordinary things actually have quite incredible properties when you start to put them together in those sorts of ways and um, yeah I think the work was a lot about just trying to say something about that and and trying to show you know not to show anything specific from from my head but just to kind of put that sort of thing out there and allow people to kind of maybe relive their own wonder a little bit. It sounds like it was a project of re-enchantment with technology. That's a very good word I think I like that word a lot yes. To yes, be re-enchanted, because often we forget that, that, you know, some of the technology, you know, you and I speaking to each other now is actually very, uh, it's quite magical in a certain way. We don't have much understanding of the, of the actual kind of hardcore engineering behind it, yet we just simply rely on it as if it works all the time. Well, yes, that is absolutely true. And I, I do feel that as technology has moved from um, perhaps it's more simple varieties into things that are now more complex, things that don't come apart easily, things that we don't understand, perhaps there's even less of a tendency for us to really fully appreciate their wonder, you know. So um, I guess that that's kind of a lot of what I try to do in the things that I'm looking at. In terms of your practice, with communication technology have you delved I mean you've very you've looked at kind of very historical pieces of his communication technology have you engaged at all or thought about at all contemporary doing work with contemporary communication technology or is this something that you purposefully avoid engaging with in your practice no, I wouldn't say so. I, I, It does seem that if I'm making something practically, like the work that you referred to that was in um, Back to Things Themselves, it does seem that I tend to use things that I can do myself. I, I don't want to have to pull in an engineer or somebody who's then going to do something that I will consider magic but have no understanding of. So... Um, in terms of contemporary technology, I tend, well, I, I appear to be um, finding a way forward with that through words. And so I've written a little bit about um, mobile communications um, in that vein. And that, that, that seems to be the way that I'm working at the moment anyway. Working with words through contemporary communication yes. technology. Yes, I did some writing about um, the way that we, the way that we navigate uh, contemporary technology in terms of communications such as mobile phone mass, mobile phones, our kind of dependency on them without really, again, regarding that kind of, you know, atmosphere of wonder that they actually contain and also um, their relationship to the natural world and how we draw on natural phenomena such as electromagne uh, electromagnetic waves um, in order for those pieces of technology to work. So rather than make something from them, I like to um, engage with them in a, in a, I suppose you would call it a descriptive sense, a phenomenological sense, in order to try to, um, again, just say, you know, look at this thing again. It's, it's a wonderful thing. 
That was Judy Spark speaking about communication technology in fine art practice. To close the show, she has chosen A Lark Descending, here performed by the London Philharmonic Orchestra, with David Nolan on violin and Vernon Handley conducting. This has been Paperweight Radio, Explorations in Visual Material Culture, and I have been your host, Juliet Christensen, with many thanks to today's guests, Matt, Liz, Marion and Judy, and to Chris Dixon for his engineering, and to Hattie, of course, for tweeting, and of course, to you, dear listener, for listening. If you're interested in reading more about our work at Paperweight, do visit our website, paperweightandnewspaper.com, or come and find us on Facebook. Join me again next week when we discuss the art school, and next up, the Opera Hour with Richard Scott. Du lytter til Resonance 104,4 FM.